The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. All right, Saints, let's go to Revelation chapter 16. Have a finger there because that's the topic of the day. Revelation 16. And I'll, I'll just briefly summarize where we are in the book of Revelation because it has been We were going through the tribulation. It was getting worse and worse as we read the details of chapters 13, 14, and 15. We needed a break, so we took three weeks off and celebrated Christmas. That was a delightful thing. And now we're back to the book of Revelation. We're going to go chapter at a time. Today we're in chapter 16, and then we'll go all the way to 22 with that glorious resolution to all this bad news. Looking forward to that. The topic of today in chapter 16 are the seven last bowls of God's wrath and judgment on planet Earth. This is the climax. This is the crescendo of all of God's wrath being concentrated and poured out on a wicked, evil world that had been even prophesied in the Old Testament for centuries. God kept promising that vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. And he was storing up his wrath as he's a patient God. But in the book of Revelation, and in particular chapter 16, we see the culmination and the final pouring out of God's wrath on sinful, fallen humanity. That's what chapter 16 is. And God's final wrath comes in the manifestation of these seven bowls of wrath. Seven bowls are picturesque of God's literal wrath being poured out on the earth. We'll go through the details of that. The seven bowls of God's wrath are the last plagues upon the earth. They're the culmination. They are the most severe, the most comprehensive. And they are poured out with finality. It is done, says the passage. It is done. It is finished and complete once the seventh bowl is poured out, God's wrath. So we're going to look at these seven bowls. We're going to move rather quickly through the chapter, just walking through verse by verse, these seven bowls. This is, this is true. This is reality. This is not fiction as we read it. It's not, it's not hyperbole. It's not allegory. It's not something that has already happened in history at some point with the popes who were alive during the Reformation. None of this happened during the time in 70 AD when Rome came in and sacked Jerusalem. This hasn't happened yet. It's yet future. And it's really going to happen. And it's going to happen just as it's described here. We need to keep that in the forefront of our minds and not let people dissuade us or think otherwise. When Jesus was about to leave earth and go to heaven... As he began the Last Supper in John 14, he looked at his disciples, his 12 disciples. We know that Judas was a phony, so he's looking at his 11 committed, loyal, believing disciples at the Last Supper. And he said this simple phrase as he's looking at, believe in God. I don't think we stop and meditate on that enough. Well, what does, number one, what does that mean and how do we do that? It's a command, it's an imperative, it's an exhortation, it's an obligation. It's not a choice. 
It's not an option. If you're a Christian, believe in God. And believe also in me. That's what Jesus said. How do you believe in God? Today, how do you do that? How do you fulfill that imperative, that command, that every Christian is obligated to do? As a matter of fact, if you're a Christian, when you get to heaven, one of the things God may very well ask us, deservedly so, did you believe in me? And we will be either rewarded or not awarded accordingly. Simple command. Jesus said, believe in God. Well, I'm just going to tell you, there's only one way to believe in God. Only one way. It's to believe this, right here, the Word of God, Scripture. Because this is how God speaks. This is His Word. We have no other access to information of what God thinks. This is His revealed mind to us. Written down for us so we can understand it. Preserved. It is permanent. It's right here in the Bible. Believe God. Why did Jesus say that? Well, some things that God says are hard to believe. And there's a lot of stuff in Revelation that's hard to believe. Because it is so unique, so different, so challenging, so supernatural. Much of it defying human reason. Finite fallen human reason. Oh, that's hard to believe. I don't believe that. And that's how even some Christians read the book of Revelation. No, Jesus said believe in God, which means believe his word. I'm bringing that up again because this has to do with our hermeneutics and how we approach and interpret the Bible. So my approach to Revelation 16, I'm just going to read through the 21 verses, say what it means, and hopefully along with me, you're going to believe it. And a lot of people might say, oh, that's ridiculous. That's like science fiction. Oh, that can't be true. That's never going to happen. Fine, let them be the doubters. Let them be the mockers. The sad thing is, is when Christians do that, Oh, God, God couldn't create the world in six days. Science says he couldn't have done that. That's not believing in God. There's only one way to believe God, and it is to take his word at face value. That's it. And we need that simple, sobering reminder. So that's how we're going to proceed today. I think about when I was studying this chapter this week, I was reminded that, um, so this is the fourth time that I've preached through Revelation chapter by chapter. Uh, the first time I did it was about 25 years ago. And then the next time I did it was about 20 years ago. And I remember 20 years ago when I was preaching through Revelation chapter by chapter. And I got to chapter 16. It was the seven bowls of the wrath of God. I called them the seven super bowls of the wrath of God. Because on that day when I was preaching, it was the first week of February 20 years ago. And it was Super Bowl Sunday in America. And I was preaching on the seven bowls, the super bowls. God's timing or coincidence. So I'll leave that up to you. But anyway, so we're looking at the seven super bowls of God's wrath. By the way, and then I preached, so that was 20 years ago, and then 10 years ago I preached at GBF, Grace Bible Fellowship, the whole book, verse by verse, and then now I'm doing it for the fourth time. And in these 25 years, and the first time I studied it, uh, in Greek was 30 years ago, every single word, every phrase, in a class that I took at seminary, an advanced Greek exegesis class of the apocalypse for 18 weeks with three guys in the class, with Dr. Robert L. Thomas on the book of Revelation. And so almost 30 years ago, and the encouraging thing was, is, is I haven't changed my view at all on anything. And the reason is because just taking it at face value. Believe in God. So let's do that together. 
If you do, you'll be encouraged. I know some of this stuff is scary. It's daunting. It's intimidating. It makes some people fearful. But God's promise to you in Revelation 1-3 is if you listen to it, you read it, you understand it, and you apply it and do it, God will bless you. Jesus will bless you as a result. Know the truth. The truth will set you free. So let's do that. I said keep your finger in Revelation 16 because I wanted to read Matthew 24 first, just a section. Because where we are now in Revelation 16 is we are at the end of the seven-year tribulation. We've been talking about that. Those of you who have been with us, you know that. Chapter 16, 17, 18, 19 is the end of the tribulation. It all goes together. And for the most part, the book of Revelation is chronological. It goes in order. Chapter 4 through 19 is chronological in terms of future yet to come of how the world is going to end. Some of you maybe thought the world is going to end this week or last week. No, it's going to end in the future. We've got a long way to go, possibly. But look at Matthew 24 about the tribulation. And the reason I'm reading this is because, listen to Jesus answering his disciples as apostles. Great question, legitimate question. It's the end of the age. He's about to die. He's about to go into Jerusalem and be crucified. He's sitting on the, the Mount of Olives, which is a beautiful picture. Jesus is just sitting there. He's overseeing the city of Jerusalem, meditating, praying to the Father, maybe even thinking about he knows he's going to die, and that's where he's going to die, over there where he's going to be crucified. Doesn't know. We don't know if he had that information yet from the Father in his humiliation. But at the same time, he's sitting up there. He knows the prophecies of the Old Testament. He knows he's the Messiah. He knows Zechariah 14. He knows that scripture. And he knows that when the Messiah returns, he lands on the Mount of Olives. And he lands in glory to rule the earth. And when he lands, it has such an impact. It splits the city of Jerusalem in three parts. And the very place where he's sitting here, Matthew 24, meditating, that's where he's going to return. So it says he's sitting on the, on the Mount of Olives, verse 3. His disciples come to him privately, private audience. They come to him, they've got a Question they put together. Okay, we've got one shot. Let's ask Jesus. Who's going to be the spokesman? Okay, Peter, if he gets mad, you're, you're, it's your fault. Tell us, middle of verse 3, here's, here's two questions. Tell us, when will these things happen? And when will these things happen? When will Jerusalem get destroyed? Because he just mentioned that. Second question. Or actually, a general question and two specifics. What, what is the sign of your coming? When are you going to come? Well, we know that specifically is in Revelation 19 not talking about his rapture. And then also, when is the end of the age? When will the world end? Jesus doesn't blow him off and say, ah, oh, that's none of your business. He does tell them about the signs. He does tell them in his grace how to prepare. There will be signs. I'm not going to tell you exactly when, because Jesus didn't know exactly when at this point in his humiliation. But here are signs. They're in the prophets. Daniel wrote about them. And I'm going to tell you even more. When is the world going to end? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Boy, we got all kinds of people misleading us and through history telling us when the world is going to end. Many Christs will come. They're going to mislead many all kinds of false religion. Verse 6, then you'll, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be tumult rising in the world. See that you are not frightened. See that you are not frightened about the end of the age and what's going, all these horrible things going on in the, in the world. There are horrible things going on in the world right now, and there's plenty of Christians who are frightened. And Jesus said, when you see these things going on, wars and rumors of wars, see that you are not frightened. That is a command, Christian. Do not fear. 
Do not fear COVID. Do not fear a virus. Do not fear a disease, Hebrews 2. Do not fear death if you're a Christian. Because you're secure in Christ. Life on this earth is temporary. It's a shadow. It's a vapor. It's gone. It's not the priority. We want to be good stewards, but it's not the priority. Living for Christ is the priority, no matter what that is. Amen. Do not be afraid for those. And yes, so here, one thing that Jesus is saying is that, okay, disciples, you want to know when the end of the age is? Well, here are some signs that will let you know the end of the age is coming. And that is, there's going to be tumult in the world. There's going to be risings of wars and rumors of war. Things are going to get worse. Things are going to escalate and get worse. That's one of the signs that we're headed in that direction. That's his point. It's a consistent theme through here. Don't be frightened, but for these things must take place. But yet, it is not the end yet. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation. See, this isn't a local problem in Jerusalem. This is universal around the world. Nation will rise against nation. We see percolings of that uh, right now. Things percolating. Nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Is that the tribulation? No. What is it? Verse 8. But all of these things, as you see the world get worse and worse to this severe degree, that's not the end. It's not the end. Don't let anybody scare you and frighten you thinking that is the end. Don't let anybody lie to you and tell you the world is ending in 11 years because of global warming. That's a lie. Don't let that frighten you. That is not true. Those are the words of a false prophet. That's from the pit. Don't meditate on it. Don't give it the time of day. That's what Jesus is saying here. And then he says this in verse 8, but all of these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now I've said this verse time and time again since we started Revelation, and I thought, you know what, I should probably explain birth pangs. What are those? That's a weird phrase. It has to do with pregnancy. They are labor pains. That's what they are. What are labor pains? Well, you guys that are clueless, let me tell you what labor pains are. They are things that happen to a woman's body when she's about to go into labor and give birth. And you know what they are? They're warning signs in her body, in her physiology. They're part of the curse according to Revelation, uh, Genesis 3, but they're also a gracious gift from God to mothers who are about to give birth to let them know when baby is about to come. So it's a warning sign. So literally, you could see a woman who's pregnant, it's nine months, and she can just stop in her tracks at any moment and say, I think the baby's going to come. Well, how does she know that? Because of her body and the physiology and the pain and the muscles and they're contracting and going in and out and creating great internal, physical, literal pain. But the baby isn't coming then, usually. Those are the warning signs. That's what birth pains are. So we have time to get on our camel and ride three hours to the hospital or catch an Uber because the husband, he's flaky and didn't show up on time or you have your hubby or whoever rush you to the hospital and you have time because the birth pains are there. It's a gracious warning sign from God. It's horrible. It's painful. It's terrible. The end result is a blessed reality. That's a baby. That's what Jesus is. That's why it's so appropriate. We have signs that we can see. There are warning signs you can see and discern and be aware of. And it's going to be horrible. We're not there yet and it's going to be horrible. Good news is when it's all done, blessed reality. 
the overcoming of the, the Lord Jesus Christ over this sinful world. So all of these preliminary signs, they're just birth pangs. They're not the tribulation yet. Verse 9, then they will deliver you to tribulation. So after the birth pangs and these horrible things, then they will deliver you to tribulation. And they will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Okay, that is, Jesus is not talking to Christians because Christians don't exist yet when he said this. Jesus didn't say this to the church because the church didn't exist yet. Who is he talking to? He's talking to only Jews and primarily Jews who know, believe, and love him. His disciples, his Jewish followers. That's who he's talking to. Right now it's the 11 apostles who had found the church. So it's believing Jews. Those apostles would start the church, but the primary audience is Jews living in Israel who believe in a Messiah. They're going to deliver you. Who's that? The Antichrist and his minions. They'll deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. That's a key phrase right there. Israel will be hated by all nations. There's 294, 194 nations on earth today. If we want to take Jesus literally, that means over 190 nations are going to have to get to a point where they hate Israel. We're getting close. Actually, what's going to happen is 194 nations are going to dissolve down to about 20 or less. And they're going to be run and dictated by people who hate Israel with a passion. They will hate you. Many will fall away, betray one another. They're going to hate one another. Many people will hate one another. Wow, we're on that trajectory, aren't we? Many false prophets will arise, mislead many. Boy, there's a lot of misleading going on. And it's going to get worse. Verse 12. How do I know it's going to get worse? Verse 12. Because lawlessness is increased. <laughs> the, the world is just going to get worse and worse as we go. Wow, Jesus, I thought you were the carrier of good news. Well, the good news, I'm going to rescue. I can rescue you from all this. Starting on a personal level. Forgiveness of sin, being adopted into the family of God, being secure with Christ forever. That's where it starts. But this world, this world is cursed, it is fallen, and it's going to get worse. Lawlessness will increase. That's what Jesus said. Paul said it will abound and grow more and more. If you're one of those Christians that believes that the earth is getting better, or the world is getting better, and we can make it a better and happy place, kumbaya, I don't think so. You are not going to usher in utopia here on planet earth. Not according to the Bible. This is a realistic view. Oh, that's pessimistic. No, this is a realistic view. They call Jesus pessimistic. He's speaking truth. He's the Savior. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. We're on that trajectory as well. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's referring to the tribulation. He, he specifically says the tribulation, it's seven years, and the Bible says that God decided to make it only seven and not 14 or 20 because nobody would survive. It'd be so horrible. Primarily from the wrath of God being poured out. And in the wholesale mass slaughter going on from the Antichrist. Literally killing billions of people at a time. So God's going to shorten that time period. The gospel's got to go out to the whole world, and it will. Then the end will come, verse 15. And then, then you will see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. You know, here Dan Jesus is assuming you can go to a prophetic book like Daniel, which people would say is apocalyptic. And it's not. It's prophetic. And it talks about the future. And Jesus is assuming they can read it, they can understand it, and they can believe it and take it at face value. If you take Daniel at face value, literally, here is the conclusion you will come to. That was Jesus' hermeneutic. We need to do the same with the book of Revelation. 
Jesus didn't study and interpret Daniel allegorically. He took it literally. What he's saying here, there's going to be an Antichrist. He's going to make a pact with Israel. Uh, Israel. Just read it in Daniel chapter 9. Follow it along. Take it literally, verses 24 to 27. And that's what you're going to get. Seven-year uh, contract or compact that the Antichrist makes with Israel. Midway through, three and a half years, the Antichrist breaks the covenant with Israel. And then wholesale hell breaks loose on planet Earth. And then Israel is persecuted for the next three and a half years. That, and it begins with the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist goes into the temple of Israel that will be rebuilt again according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Israel's going to build a temple. And the Antichrist is going to go in there and he's going to desecrate the temple. And Jesus said, look for it. And when you see that, he gives a warning and he tells them what to do. Run. Verse 16, run. If you, if you live in Judea, run. Flee. Why Judea? Because that's headquarters of all this stuff going on at the end of the age. Verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation. A great tribulation. Well, isn't just a, wasn't this just a local issue in Jerusalem in 70 AD, Jesus? No. A great tribulation. He's quoting Daniel here, the great tribulation. Jan, Daniel chapter 12. There will be future, Jesus is saying this in about 30 AD, this is future, it is yet to come. It is a great tribulation. Was it a local tribulation? No, he gets specific. Such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. How more specific can that possibly be? This will be the greatest worldwide tribulation. It is yet future. It hasn't happened yet. Jesus said this in 30 AD. 65 years later, John wrote about it. 65 years later. In mid-90s, God gave us this inference. Jesus, what are you talking about? Well, here it is. The great tribulation. It is literal. It is yet future. It is coming. And God in his grace has given the information and details of it. Why do I say in his grace? Well, because he wants to rescue sinners from this. All throughout the book of Revelation, he's given the details, but at the same time, he's given a saving call. You can repent and be saved. You can repent and be saved. You can repent and be saved. Some do, most don't. And we're going to see that in Revelation 16. So let's go ahead and look. We saw the birth pangs at the beginning of, uh, in Revelation chapter 6 and Revelation 7, 8, and 9. And then now we, then we hit the midpoint around Revelation 14, and now we are at the end of the tribulation. And God's going to pour out his wrath. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, starting at chapter 16, verses 1 through 21. I'm going to read through the whole thing. I'm going to go, I'm going to, I want to go quickly because that's what's going on here. You can even get this from the Greek text where, I don't know if it was Jesus or John, his own, or whoever, the angels. John's writing with an aorist imperative with many of these commands. And if you take Greek, what's an aorist imperative? That means a sense of urgency. So we're going to read it quickly. Here's what it's going to look like at the end of the tribulation. John says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, seven angels who had these seven huge saucers full of the wrath of God. God's voice comes out and says to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. 
And it became loathsome and malignant sores on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. And then the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar in heaven saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to the sun to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent. So as to give him glory, and the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing miracles which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon or Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and the loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds of, and peals of thunder and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city, Jerusalem, was split into three parts. The cities and nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath, and every island fled, and every mountain disappeared. And huge hailstones, about 120 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. There it is. The seven bowls of the wrath of God. Let's just walk through these and get more detail. That made me tired going through that. Made me a little anxious. So let's look at the first. We're just going to look at these seven bowls one by one. I would encourage you to follow along in your Bible if you, if you have a Bible, uh, if you're taking notes. Listening helps. Listening and reading helps even more. Listening, reading, and taking written notes is even better because it gives you long-term memory on these things. We want to be Berean. So let's go ahead and look at the first bowl that God is going to pour out. Then I heard... A loud, verse 1, then I heard a loud voice from the temple. So John is getting these visions in order. And then he hears a temple, uh, a voice from the loud temple. In previous studies, we saw that 
God, the, that this is the heavenly temple. The earthly temple corresponds to this real heavenly temple up in heaven. That's God's dwelling. That's his presence. As God was preparing to lay out and pour out his wrath in chapter 15, God dismissed everybody from his presence before he poured out his seven last bowls of wrath. It's like, okay, I don't want anybody to be around. I don't want anybody to see. It's like God is being incredibly single-mindedly focused. It's going to get bad. It's going to get ugly. Everybody leave. That's what happened. Except for these angels that are commissioned to receive their bowls of wrath. So out of the temple where God is by himself, we know this is God. The voice that came out of the temple is God. God is the one speak. Could be the Lord Jesus. Because this is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.1, the, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. He is the judge. John chapter 5. He's the one peeling the seals. He's the one giving directives. He's the one in charge. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He reigns on high. Then I heard the voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Go and pour out. And this is one of those verbs, pour out. Where I said it was an aorist imperative. Aorist is just a tense in the Greek language. An imperative means it's a command. Those together speak of a, an urgency an immediacy. And they obey. Do it quickly. Verse 2, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. So one thing, since I can't prolong this and go into great detail on a lot of all these phrases and words, I'm trying to get big picture things to help you in your own study. So here's a couple big picture observations on chapter 16 that you need to be aware of. These seven bowls are all poured out in different places. And it's, very, it's designated, it is very specific, it is laser-focused, and it's very particular. And when you take all seven places where these bowls are poured out, it is comprehensive. It includes all of human reality, not just the physical realm, but the spiritual realm as well. So look at where the bowls are being poured out, as I pointed out. The first bowl is poured out, verse 2, on the earth. And that means the entire earth. This is not local. This isn't just in Jerusalem. By the way, another big picture observation is these seven bowls, they are universal in nature, which is not true of the seven seals we saw earlier in chapter 6 and the seven trumpets in chapters 8 and 9. The seven seals, a lot of their impact was on a fourth of the earth. So if there's 8 billion people today, 2 billion people died. That's a lot. Then we got to, to the trumpet judgments, which were a little more severe. And it kept saying a third, a third, a third, which is more than a fourth. So the severity is being escalated with each of these judgments. So the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and now with the bowl judgments, it's not a fourth of humanity. It's not a third of humanity. It is universal. It is everybody on planet Earth. That is clear from the text. It is universal. The impact. So this is... This judgment is being poured out of everybody living on earth. So that's where it, the judgment is poured. On the earth, uh, verse 3, the next bowl is poured out onto the sea, the entire sea. 75% of earth is covered in water, and that's what was affected. Verse 4, the bowl is poured out on the rest of water on planet earth, and those are the fresh water sources, the rivers and springs of water. So all water is affected on planet earth. Verse 8 is the fourth bowl poured out on the sun, our greatest planet that gives us all life. And also, 
the fourth bull is a unique judgment. It hasn't happened before because in the previous judgments under the seals and the trumpets, the sun was affected, but it was darkened both times. Darkened. Here, something unique has happened. God cranks up the heat. And everybody on planet Earth is affected by the sun. It's universal. Then verse 10, the fifth judgment is poured on the throne of the beast. The beast is the Satan-possessed Antichrist and all of his demons and henchmen. This is false religion, including that which is in the spiritual realms, these demons. So that's the spiritual world. That's the evil spiritual world is affected and included in this. That's why I say it's comprehensive, these judgments. Then verse 12 is the great river Euphrates, which at the end of the age, at the Euphrates in Babylon over there, where Abraham was from, where Ezekiel was, and where it's a hot spot in the world today over along the Euphrates River in Babylon, that will be headquarters of planet Earth in the future. It will be the economic headquarters of the world. It will be the political headquarters of the world. It will be the religious center of the world. That's command control center for planet Earth in the future headquartered on the Euphrates River near Babylon. It's in the Middle East. Where's world history end? The Middle East. Where did creation begin? The Euphrates River, Genesis 2. Where does, cre- where does human history end? The Euphrates River, Revelation 16. Still there today. The Great River. And then finally, uh, 17, the seventh bowl is poured upon the air. Get this. God's poured his wrath on every conceivable manifestation of human existence including this, this, the demonic and spiritual realm. And it's like, okay, in case somebody's hiding in a cave under a rock, I'll get you too, because he pours it out on the air. And air is what every person breathes to even live. No one is exempt. The only people exempt from these direct manifestations of God's wrath at that time are those who have been sealed by the Lamb, believers. So that's important to keep in mind. So these are universal judgments. And so the first one is poured out on the entire earth, and what happens is it becomes a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who have the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Another big picture observation is that these judgments of God's wrath are directed specifically towards unbelievers, towards earth dwellers. Remember, 12, 13 times John kept calling unbelievers earth dwellers, beginning in Revelation 3.10. I'm going to bring a worldwide tribulation for the purpose of punishing earth dwellers. And he's consistent in that. And an earth dweller is conspicuously known because they have a mark on their wrist or their hand, actually, the back of their hand, or on their forehead, so everybody knows and they're proud of it. They're clearly marked. They're clearly identified. Satan knows what he's doing. He's done this before. He did it with the Jews in the 1940s. And then through the Muslims, he did it through uh, the yellow star and the yellow mark, even on Christians and Jews in the Middle Ages, actually. They had outward markings. And that's what's going to happen here. A clear demarcation of those who believe and those who do not. And God is going to punish the unbelievers with loathsome and malignant sores. These are the same kind of sores that Job was given by God for chastening. Malignant, loathsome, literally bad or pernicious or harmful. They are painful. 
and we don't know how long they last, but everybody on planet Earth is going to get these. So you've got two marks now if you're an unbeliever. You've got a mark on your wrist, and you've got gross, oozing, disgusting, painful sores all over your body. There's a mark for you. And it's real. Second bowl, verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. Like I said, 75% of what covers planet Earth. Many commentators say, and it became like blood. The text doesn't say it became like blood. It became as blood. It looked like blood. It gave the appearance of blood. At precisely 5.32 p.m. in the evening, if you're from this angle, when the red sand bounces off the skyline of the horizon, then the whole sea kind of, sort of looks a little bit like blood. Now, that's not what that means. Where did I get that? Out of a commentary. Evangelical, so-called conservative, reliable comment. No. became blood. Go back and read many of these. They're called plagues, by the way. We saw that in chapter 15, verse 1. The seven bowls, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. They're called plagues. Plagues of God. God's in charge. There's another big picture observation. Who is in charge of these plagues? God. He's the author of them. He controls them. He monitors them. He directs them precisely where they need to go. He's the God of the plagues. And that's what he did with Pharaoh. The ten plagues. Read about it. Exodus 7 through 12. And those were specifically geared towards the false gods of Egypt. And judgments against the hardened Pharaoh. Ten plagues. First one, turn the Nile into blood. You read the Old Testament, it doesn't say, and the Nile kind of looked like blood. No, the Nile became blood. That's what it says. And then that's repeated in the Psalms. A hundred or five hundred years later, from the inspired psalmist. God turned the water into blood. That's what he did. Well, that's impossible. No, it's not. God does miracles. Don't try to figure it out scientifically. It's a miracle. Miracles defy human science. That's what happens here. Very clear, verse 3. The entire sea is going to be turned into blood. And as you can imagine, it's only logical. What makes sense? Um, every living thing in the sea dies. You know, this is the absolute reverse of what God did in Genesis 1 when it said he created every, every living thing in the sea. He gave it life. He breathed life into it. This is the exact opposite. Every living thing in the sea died. It's interesting during Noah's flood where it says God killed every living thing on the earth. God took away everything that had life on the earth. On the earth. It never mentions fish or things in the sea. Apparently they got spared. During Noah's judgment, not here. Every living thing in the sea died. And God did it. Third bowl, verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters. This is the last of the vestiges of all water on planet Earth. These are the fresh water sources. Now, now people are going to be struggling to survive from a lack of water. Because all the rivers and springs are affected and they also become blood. Not like blood, they literally become blood. Well, this is terrible. Well, how could a God do that? A, a loving God. That is not the cry of a believer. As a matter of fact, the cry of a true believer, an informed believer, a mature believer, a spirit-filled believer who believes in the holiness of God and the inspiration of the Bible responds exactly the opposite. How? Well, like this. Verse tells us. 
Verse 5, and I heard the angel of the waters saying, okay, now, God is affecting the waters, the seas, and the... Did you know that God has angels doing all of his business? And he gives them jurisdiction and authority over certain areas and certain... That is clear from Scripture. It's clear in Daniel. It's clear in Revelation. We've seen this already. There were the angels in control of the winds who were in charge of hurricanes and tornadoes. That's if you believe in the Bible literally. And there are several angels. There's an angel in the Bible who has power over fire. This is where the Greeks almost got it right. They just twisted truth. They've got a God for everything. A God for hell, a God for water, a God for fire, a God for the winds, a God for... Yeah, that's almost right. But it's God, the only God, the God of the Bible, the triune God, and his angels. And so there are angels over the water. That's their job. And you would think that the guy, the angel, his responsibility, okay, I'm in charge of the waters and got to keep things flowing and keep things going and keep the water cycle going. Got to check in with the cloud guy, make sure he's doing his job, fresh water so people can. And here, and then when God judges all water on planet Earth, the angel of the waters doesn't get upset or question God, impugn God's integrity. Well, God, what are you doing? Not everybody deserved that. Here's the angel over the water's response. Verse 5, he says, Righteous are you. That's what he said to God. You know what? Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. That's how this chapter began. That little phrase at the end of verse 1, Go and pour out the earth of the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Well, we don't like to talk about the wrath of God. Not a happy subject. Well, a mature Christian talks about the wrath of God. This whole chapter is about the wrath of God. Romans 9 is clear that the wrath of God reveals the glory of God, his, ver his characteristics, his attributes, his true nature is put on display through his wrath. If you don't deal with the wrath of God, you're not dealing with the true God of the Bible, of the God who created you, the God who will judge you. He is a God of holy wrath, deserved wrath. O holy one, because you judge these things, for they poured out, and who's he punishing? Earth dwellers, what did they do? Well, they poured out the blood of the saints. They just poured it out. They were flippant about it, callous about it, and that's how they're going to proceed in the future is they're killing believers, not even thinking about it, totally seared conscience. Life has no value whatsoever. They've just got an agenda, a political agenda, a money-driven agenda, and everything else, and they're just slaughtering believers, pouring out their blood, God says, oh, okay, you want to pour things out? Then I'm going to pour out your blood. I'm going to pour out judgment on you. The same word here, poured out, same word used in Acts chapter 2, when God poured the Spirit on his people. He poured the Spirit on believers. And here he pours out his wrath on unbelievers. Because they poured out the blood of the saints. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's what God said in the Old Testament. They deserve it, end of verse 6. And I heard the altar saying, yes. So others chime in. Oh, Lord God, these are saints and angels in heaven. Amen, God, you are the judge. Worthy and righteous are you. Some Christians in this lifetime will never quite get there to have this proper perspective of God as the holy judge. And you're going to be shocked when you get to heaven. You'll be shocked in the reality. So part of Christian maturity is getting close to the proper mindset of what God is really like during this life. So the transition won't be so traumatic when you get to heaven of who God really is. 
Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Then the fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun. And these are happening instantly and in rapid-fire succession. It's like the world can't even take a breath as they're hit with the plagues and the sores and the water's going to boom, then they're hit with the sun. That's how quickly it's happening. Just completely overwhelmed. Many people, no doubt, going into shock. You would think this would soften them and bring them to their knees in repentance. Well, it doesn't for a lot of them. Poured out on the sun. What happened to the sun? And it was given to it to scorch people with fire. Humans, all humans, were scorched with fire because of the fierce heat. Then look at their response. They blasphemed God. They mocked God. Three times in this chapter it says that was their response. They blasphemed God. They blasphemed God in verse 11. They blasphemed God in verse 21. They bl- that's their response, which is interesting. They're not ignorant. They're not agnostics. What's an agnostic? Somebody who doesn't, well, I don't know if God exists. I don't know if Jesus rose from the dead. They're not agnostics. It says they blaspheme God. They're shaking their fists. They know who he is. Curse you, Jesus. That's not agnosticism. They blaspheme the name of God who, who has the power. There it is. These aren't happening randomly. These aren't natural phenomena. You can't explain these naturalistically. Why are these plagues happening? Because... They blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues. That is our God. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Well, I'm a Christian and my business is all about giving God glory. Really? Well, one way to give God glory is to bless him with his righteous judgments. They deserve this. You're a holy God. It gives him glory when he judges appropriately. Verse 10, And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. This is a real man. He exists in the future. We've already talked about him. He will be the Antichrist. He will be controlled and filled with Satan himself. He will be, have the ability to do miracles. He will die and come back to life through the power of Satan that God has delegated to him. He will be in awed by the world. He will take control of the world. He will manipulate ten nation leaders at some point. He will fool Israel. He will hate the Jews like never before. He will form a coalition of people who hate the Jews. He'll be the most, he'll consolidate all power, all political power, all religious power, and all economic power. He will be the future world leader. That is the beast. He's going to be running the show. You know, if if you're a student of history and you do historical study, you realize this is not really far-fetched in terms of most nations of the world are run by tyrannical dictators. That's world history. This little blip of United States American history of 230 years, totally out of keeping what has happened historically in world history. Totally unheard of. Wasn't even conceived of. Wouldn't work. Doesn't last. This is how world history is run. And it's going to go back to that. Think Pharaoh. Think Nebuchadnezzar or whoever. It's going to happen. But God's going to judge him. And his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. Is this literal darkness? Well, most commentaries that I've read say, oh, no. No, it is literal darkness. Just like, remember these are plagues? 
Remember the plagues of Egypt? One of the plagues was darkness. Was that a literal? It was literal darkness. Go back and read it. A literal darkness that could be felt. And it was frightening. And this is going to be a literal darkness that God is going to pour out on this coming world ruler. And there's going to be pain is going to come with it. And it says they nod, keep on, and they keep on nine. They keep on biting their tongue from the severe pain. They can't escape the pain that comes with this plague. This is the pain in addition to the fierce heat. This is the pain in addition to the malignant oozing sores all over the body. In addition to the pain of not having any water accessible and a shortage of food. That's why God had to shorten these days. This couldn't last. Well, you would think that they would be softened and want to repent. No, verse 11, and they blasphemed the name of God. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent. Verse 12, bowl number six. The angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Man, it's... Euphrates is mentioned two times in the New Testament, both times in Revelation, many times in the Old Testament. Every time you see Euphrates, it's the Euphrates River. John, he's not trying to trick anybody. He's uh, an old Jewish man that lived in the Middle East, and he probably had relatives that lived by the Euphrates River. He definitely had descendants who came from the area of the Euphrates River, Babylon, and many of the prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah, lived by the Euphrates River. That's where Abraham, the father of Jews, came from was by the Euphrates River. That's where creation started in Genesis chapter 2 was the Euphrates River. This is the, the Euphra- it's literal. Does the Euphrates River still exist today after 6,000 years of history? Yes. And it's one of the largest rivers in the world. Tigris-Euphrates River almost reaching 2,000 miles. Still there. And it's a major line of demarcation of separating nations that hate each other. It's been true all throughout history and it's true today. What is on the other side of that Euphrates River is very frightening for the little nation of Israel. And the sixth angel pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water dried up instantaneously. Wait, can God do that? Can God dry up massive bodies of water instantaneously at the mention of his word? Yeah, absolutely. Once again, go back to the book of Exodus. God dried up the Red Sea, both sides. They walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. Then they were for 40 years in the desert, and then Joshua led them into the Promised Land, but the, the, Jordan, the huge Jordan River was in the way. And God opened up the Jordan River, and it says, about 2 million Israelites crossed the Jordan River, get this, on dry ground. That's a miracle. Don't try to explain it away, naturalistically. That isn't the only time. Elijah and Elisha had a ministry as prophets. At the end of Elijah's life, he's taken Elijah everywhere he goes, and he's going to Jordan, he's going to Jericho, he's going to here. Then he gets to the, Jordan, to, to the river there, same thing. He wants to cross, and boom, dried up instantaneously, on dry ground. Elijah does the same thing, on dry ground. That's, believe God. That's his word. This is going to happen. And God's doing this for preparatory work, by the way. He's going to drive the Euphrates River to allow certain nations to enter in to circle and surround the nation of Israel for the last world war. Whether it's World War III or IV or whatever it is, it is the last world war. It's described in detail in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Zechariah 12 through 14. It's all there. And the water was dried up so that the way would be prepared. There it is for the kings from the east. The kings from the east who hate Israel is what it should say. 
or other scriptures tell us. Verse 13, and I saw it coming out of the mouth. So then he gives us a description of, well, who's empowering the Antichrist again? And how, is this, how in the world is, are all the kings of the earth who hate each other, all vying for power, all got master megalomaniac egos, how in the world are they going to consolidate under one cause? That would take supernatural human ability. Well, it is going to be supernatural ability. And when you hate the same common enemy enough, you can, you can reunite, unite around that cause. And they do. Verse 13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that would be Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, that is the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, that's a real man, that's the unholy trinity, what was coming out of their mouth? The emphasis on their mouth is they're great speakers. The Antichrist is going to be a great orator. Very persuasive. He'll be able to scare people, manipulate people, persuade people, deceive people, his mouth. And he doesn't have just human ability. Out of the mouth came unclean spirits like frogs. If you're a Jew and you're thinking frog, you're thinking unclean. You're thinking Leviticus 11, like three or four times. Unclean abomination. Despicable. Frogs were despicable. These, this is a good description of a demon. What's coming out of their mouth? These frogs, for verse 14, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out of the king, which go out to kings of the whole world. So God is going to give the Antichrist and the false prophets supernatural, miraculous ability through the power of demons and Satan himself to encourage and allow the kings of planet earth to coalesce together. And Daniel's very specific that there will be at least, in the end there will be ten kings that come together. And then there will be a coup de grace on the part of the Antichrist as he usurps all that power. You've got to consolidate it all. Well, how else can you take over planet earth and control eight billion people? There's got to be a masterful strategy. So there are prerequisites. How do you, how do you take control of the whole world when it's got billions of people? The prerequisites are, well, it needs to be, many things need to be centralized and consolidated in terms of power, including our money and our money system. And you have to have a tight hierarchy, and you have to have somebody very gifted to be able to pull it off. You have to be able to deceive the people. You have to be able to create fear over the people so that you can manipulate the people, and you do a lot of this by deception and propaganda. That's how you do this. And then you have the technology to make it happen that can reach instantaneously the whole world all at one time. 150 years ago, it'd be hard to figure out how all this stuff can be taken literally universally in the book of Revelation. Today, it's a no-brainer. Create a false uh, panic across the world, and when the government has everybody in a panic, they can pretty much control them and tell them whatever they want to do. They can declare martial law. People will, I will obey. If you save my life, I will obey. If I get my daily food and a car that can get me to work, I will obey. That's just humanity. And you can study world history, and that's always been the case. That's what he's going to do. And he's going to gather the kings of the whole world together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. This war was predicted in the Old Testament. This is the last and final world war. This is it. Described in detail in Revelation 19 when we get there. Verses 11 and following. Verse 15. And then Jesus gives this warning and word of encouragement to his readers in that day back in 95 AD. As they're probably overwhelmed reading this. Like, wow, when is this going to happen? And how do I get away from this? And I'm not sure about my 
faith in Christ, and I, I don't know if I truly believe in him. And so Jesus in his grace says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and then will not see his shame. You can be forgiven through me, through Jesus Christ, through the Savior. I died for sin. I died for your sin as a substitute. I absorbed God's wrath already. You don't need to absorb the future wrath of God. I absorbed all of the Father's wrath already on the cross as your substitute. Believe, repent, and you will be saved and rescued from this. This is not your fate. And then you go back to Revelation 3.10. Well, that's where Jesus gave that promise to the faithful in Philadelphia. There's a tribulation coming. It's going to come upon the whole world. And I will keep you from that hour. If you are faithful, I will keep you from that time period. You won't be subjected to it. God always reaching out in grace, even at the 11th hour. And then what is this battle? What about it? It's got a name, verse 16. And they gathered together to the place in Hebrew, which is called Armageddon. This is the battle of Armageddon. It happens at the end of the tribulation, before the millennium. Spearheaded by the Antichrist, gathering all the kings of the earth. It's concentrated in the Middle East around Israel. They surround Israel. They start making headway against the Israelites and the Jews. And just when Israel is about to be snuffed out and pushed into the Mediterranean Sea, which is what all anti-Semites want, Jesus comes to save the day, Revelation 19. And he comes in the sky with a sword coming out of his mouth. And he lands in Jerusalem. He lands on the Mount of Olives. He lands to rescue Israel. And they look on him whom they have pierced. The Jews, and they cry out to Jesus as Savior, Messiah. That's how it's going to happen. That is the battle of Armageddon, and the Lord Jesus Christ, the all-powerful warrior, snuffs out his enemies. Then the seventh bowl, verse 17, and then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. It is complete. World history has finally been completed. And this ushers in the return of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, who conquers all of his enemies, who raises up all believers in their resurrection bodies, who get to sit with him on his throne, and he reigns on the earth for 1,000 years, Revelation 20. And Jesus is the dictator of planet earth. But he's perfect, he is sinless, he is righteous, he is holy, he is gracious, he is faithful, he never makes a mistake, it'll be glorious. 1,000 years. And believers will be in their resurrected bodies reigning with Christ on the earth. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what that prayer meant. On earth. That prayer will be answered. It is done, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds of peals of thunder up in heaven, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth, so that it great an earthquake that it was so mighty. The great city of Jerusalem was split into three parts. This is probably when Jesus comes and lands. He lands on the Mount of Olives and splits the entire earth. Jerusalem is split into three. Verse 19, And the cities of the nations fell. This is prophecy. They will fall. Babylon the Great was remembered by God. That is not a good thing. They will be punished. Babylon will be punished to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island will flee. All the mountains are just going to disappear just like that when Jesus lands on planet Earth. I just got to say, man, that's got to be cool. I want to see that. Well, if you're a Christian, you will. 
We will be there. And then 21, and huge hailstones, just like in the plagues of Egypt, where there was hailstones that came down with fire and blood. These are worse. Because they're not just restricted to Egypt. They are all over the world. Can you imagine a 120-pound block of ice whistling through space at thousands of miles an hour? That would smash your Hyundai to pieces. And that's what's going to happen. This is not an exaggeration. This is literal. Huge hailstones, about 120 pounds actually, the Greek word, came down from heaven upon the human race. And people are, they are furious. They're seeing every precious commodity and uh, possession they have on planet Earth just get utterly smashed in front of their eyes from these hailstones. If you go, if you go out, you're going to get killed. So you look out your window and everything you find valuable out in the front of your house, it is smashed. Ice blocks and boulders are smashing through the roof of your house. And we don't know how long it's going to go on, but men will be furious. They will blaspheme God again for the third time because of this plague, the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. That's a lot of stuff. I've got to let that ruminate, soak in. And I would plead with you as Jesus made a, an appeal in there as well in the midst of this, saying you don't have to be subjected to this. You don't have to fear this if you don't know me. If you don't know me, come to me, said Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Savior. You can say, today is the day of salvation. What do I need to do to know Christ and have security in him? Acknowledge that you are a sinner. You were made by God the Creator. Your sin is your own. Your sin separates you from a holy God. You're his enemy. You're a child of wrath. You can't save yourself. You deserve his holy judgment. That holy judgment is coming unless you repent and, ask, and cry out to God, your Creator, and ask him to save you through the person of Jesus Christ the only Savior, the only way to heaven, the only way to salvation, as he died on the cross literally 2,000 years ago, as the God-man absorbing the full wrath of God on behalf of sinners. Then he was buried and he rose again from the dead. Went back into heaven. He reigns on high as the Savior of the world and the King of kings. And he's trying to woo every single soul on planet Earth, calling them to repentance. If you repent and believe in him, cry out to him, he'll save you in a moment. And you'll be secure in the palm of his hand forever. Let's go to that gracious, saving God. Father, we thank you for our time together and the opportunity to look to your word, a challenging book in Revelation. Some things very hard to believe, complicated. We're always dependent upon your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for faithfully opening up our minds so we can understand your truth. Allow us to embrace this, to do what Jesus said, believe in God. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.